Good morning, New Life. My name is Will, one of the pastors here at New Life Press, and I'd like to invite you to open up to the book of Nehemiah as we continue our, our study on this wonderful book about how God uses this broken and frail leader in Nehemiah to restore and rebuild his people to himself. And our passage this morning comes to us in the ending of the end of chapter 8, verses 13 to 18. So Nehemiah 8, verses 13 to 18. If I could ask everyone to please stand for the reading of God's word. We do this as an act of reverence, an act of worship, and please give your undivided attention to the reading of God's holy word this morning, starting with verse 13. It says, On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people where the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, in the square at the water gate, in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths for from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, noon to the day, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there's a solemn assembly according to the rule. And this is God's word. Take your seats, please. <clears throat> well, it's been a, a while, at least in my household, but uh, a couple or a handful of times, what my, my two girls like to do sometimes is to build a, a makeshift tent out of chairs and blankets, or maybe some of the other families could resonate with this. We bought a, a tent that was, I think, yellow and red from Ikea, and sometimes they set it up and they pretend like they're camping. And every time I did that with the girls and we would play that, uh, play that with them, it always reminded me of the one time that I actually went real camping. Real camping in the sense of uh, actually having to cook your own meal over the fire, you hike for several miles, you have to learn how to pitch a tent. It's not glamping, it's not a trailer, it's uh, real camping. And I was about maybe mid-20s, I was living in New Jersey, it was my one and only time of going camping for what I thought was a real experience, and I vowed after that experience that I'm never going to do this again. But the camping was real tough. And every time I played camping with my girls, I'm always reminded of that tough circumstance. I mean, camping is just, I know a lot of families here love camping, and God bless you, it's just not my thing. Or maybe I didn't really know how to do it, because when I was camping, I just remember it was cold, it was hard, it was wet, couldn't eat the foods that I want. We would hike for literally five miles, and the leader that was leading us got lost. So we hiked for five miles and ended up at the, back, at the same spot that we began. I didn't even know if we packed the right food, so we had these large jars of spaghetti sauce that were really heavy, and we put them in our backpack. I was always hungry, so I was eating these saltine crackers, and they got yelled at because they're saying, if you eat saltine crackers, you get thirsty. If you get thirsty, you drink all the water. We've got to preserve all the water. But I ate the crackers anyway because I was hungry, and I thought this is the worst experience I could ever have. And every time I play camping with the girls, it just reminds me of that one and only time that I went camping in New Jersey. And I pray that I'll never have to experience anything like that again. 
Well, in a watered-down way, we look at this passage, and basically, God's people are reminded of their camping experience. The Israelites in these verses are studying the Word of God. They realize they neglected a commandment to celebrate what the Jewish people called the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a feast to celebrate the goodness and the faithfulness of God, an eight-day celebration to remind Israel of their time in the wilderness wandering for 40 years after they left Egypt. And before they entered the land of Canaan, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, living in these makeshift tents or booths. And in this passage, years after that experience of Exodus, they're reminded to celebrate this by actually reenacting the wilderness wandering. It's sort of like a play or a drama for about eight days, build temporary tents and live in them for a week. And you may be thinking, well, what does this have to do with us today? Because we don't have to actually celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles because that's a ceremonial law. It was done away with when Jesus died on the cross. But there are promises and characteristics of God that we could be reminded of as we celebrate and think about what the Feast of Tabernacles was meant to represent for us today. And I think there are three things that the Feast of Tabernacles or the tabernacle life, as I like to call it, reminds the New Testament believers like you and I today, modern people in the 21st century. And these are the three things that we could learn about the Feast of Tabernacles. One, it's a reminder to be thankful for our past and God's faithful promises to us. Secondly, it's an encouragement to be a witness in the present, to be evangelistic, to be a light, and to be a witness today with your family, your work, your spouses, your children, your parents, your neighborhood, your neighbors in the neighborhood. And then thirdly, it gives us an unrelenting hope for the future. That's what the tabernacles do for us. They remind us of the importance of being thankful for God's faithfulness to us in the past. They encourage us to be a witness today to our neighbors and our friends. And it reminds us and gives us an unrelenting hope for the future. And let's look at this. Why does a tabernacle do this for us? Well, one, we'll see that it reminds us to be thankful for the past. Thankful for the past. You come together here in Nehemiah chapter 8. In the verses that we read in the first half of 8, it was a public worship service. And then in the verses in the second half of chapter 8, we see that they wanted to study the Word of God. So in some ways, what we have here in chapter 8 is the life of the Israelites centered on the Bible. They had a worship service in the first half, and then they have small group Bible study, essentially small group Bible study, in the second half. Read in the verse 13. It says this, On the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. So they came to Ezra, not because he was a charismatic person, but because he was a teacher of the Bible. And by the way, when they come together for public worship in the first half, in a small group Bible study in the second half, that in some skeleton form is sort of the model of ministry we have at New Life Press, that we come together to worship on Sunday, and then we have sermon discussion in our community groups in our CG ministry led by Pastor Min. The reason we do this is because we know the Spirit of God works, but we also know that not everyone will get the point of the message on the first time. And in fact, not everyone will get the message of the sermon the second time. And so sometimes the best way that God works is not just through the means of grace on Sunday, 
but also through sermon, discussion, and application, and prayer, and accountability in a smaller group environment. And that's why we take this sort of approach, because we think it's based upon Nehemiah 8. But when these guys come together in the verses to study the law of God, they realized they'd forgotten a commandment given to the Jewish people that they've been commemorating, celebrating for years, but they have forgotten for decades, and that's the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 14, they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And after hearing this commandment, they immediately obey. That's verse 16. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts, in the courts of the house of God in the square, and in the square at the water gate and the square at the gate of Ephraim. Now, as a pastor, just as a side note, this is a wonderful, encouraging passage because it makes ministry look really easy. They read the law in 14. They do it right away in verse 16. Now, it's really easy. Tie 10% of your income, and then you immediately do it. Pray ceaselessly, and then you immediately do it. Evangelize to your neighbor, and then you immediately do it. Read the Bible and study theology, and then we immediately do it. Forgive the one who has offended you. Be gracious to the people that have hurt you, and then we immediately do it. In reality, we know it's not that easy, but this is a very special moment in the life of Israel. They read verse 14 to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. There wasn't any questioning. There wasn't any grumbling. They just immediately did it. That was the sort of revival that we have in Nehemiah chapter 8 to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, why do we have to understand this, and what does this do? Why did they have to do this in Nehemiah 8? A couple of things, friends. One, it was a reminder of the 40 years of their ancestors wandering in booths and tabernacles made from sticks and stones and leaves and branches. And when they were reminded of what Israel did for 40 years in the wilderness, it was a reminder of God's care. It was a reminder to the people in the present of God's faithfulness to his promises in the past. Because sometimes the problems in the present make us forgetful about the faithfulness of God's purposes in the past. Now, he's not a Christian, but a Jewish rabbi by the name of Jonathan Sachs says about this passage in the Feast of Tabernacles, the tabernacle in all its vulnerability symbolizes faith, the faith of the people who set out long ago on a risk-laden journey across a desert space and time with no more protection than the sheltering divine presence. And even here in Nehemiah 8, and for 21st century modern people like you and me, which we have so much more in terms of material possession than they did in Nehemiah 8, than the Israelites in the wilderness wandering, what this reminds us is to be thankful for God's presence and His faithfulness in the past, because it shows us that the only real sheltering that we have in life today is going to be the presence of God. And by, friend, and by celebrating, the Israelites confess their confidence in the Lord, not in walls and buildings, not in man-made structures, but really in their faith and the promises of God. In that way, tabernacles were a reminder that they are indebted to God and they're indebted to His grace and love to Him. And I think that's the reminder for you and I here today, that we don't have to build booths and go out and build tents that are makeshift from tents and leaves, but it does remind us to be thankful for God's past care, His faithfulness to His covenant promises, to be reminded of God's Word and that He's always with us in the past, and today, and will be with us in the future. You see, friends, for 21st century modern people, oftentimes forgetfulness is the root of discontentment. 
because we're obsessed with what we need or we think we need. And when we're obsessed with what we think we need, we forget what we already have. With present challenges, it's always easy to forget what God has already done for us in the past. If you just take a moment and if you just recollect, we just passed Thanksgiving, and take a moment and just reflect upon your life for 10 years, 20 or 30, the both highs and the lows, you'd be quite taken aback by, I bet, how many times you could remember that God got you through in the moments that you thought you weren't going to make it, in both big matters and small matters, through the graduations, through the promotions, through the hardships and the falling outs of relationships, through getting engaged and dealing with marital issues, through children and students at school dealing with peer pressure and all the social media influence, you'll realize if you just take a moment and reflect upon the goodness and the faithfulness of God in the past, that will remind you that God is still with you in the present. It's interesting how in our culture we celebrate Thanksgiving. We're supposed to be thankful for all that God has given us, and we always look around and we have too much. And then literally a month later, we have to celebrate Christmas, and they're scrambling to get all these things that we think we need. It's an interesting culture phenomenon. But the modern people today are so concerned sometimes about what we want God to do in the now that sometimes we forget what God has already done in the past. And it's a good reminder for us that each day, to remember the Lord's goodness to us, who we are as a people of God and what God is for us in his goodness, his faithfulness, and his care. A psychology professor by the name of Laura Dobson, she wrote an article once. I'm just going to summarize a couple of her salient points. An article that says, why do I dwell on the past? And I think there's an overlap between what Dr. Dobson has talked about in her article versus what we are saying here in this passage about the importance of remembering the past. Because she says this, our personal, our personal memories give us a sense of continuity. The same person or the same sense of self moving through time and different experiences, they provide important details of who we are and who we'd like to be and where we came from. Dwelling on our personal memories not only helps us as individuals, it also allows us to operate in our socioculture context. Society and culture influence the way we remember the past and how we integrate and relate to our society today by simply remembering who we were in the past. And so, for instance, she goes on and writes, in Western individualistic cultures, people tend to recall memories that are long, specific, detailed, and individualistic. But in contrast, Eastern Asian cultures tend to remember more general memories focusing on social interactions and community and significant others. And researchers have seen these differences in children and adults as well. What's the point of all this? For us, what she is saying and what we're trying to say is that Dobson says if you remember the past in detail, whether individualistically or communally, it affects your sense of identity and how you integrate and relate to the world today. And what this passage is showing us is making the same point. If we can remember the past and what God has done for us, it'll help us with our self-understanding as a people of God and what we're called to do to interact and engage society around us. But whereas in terms of the secular psychological approach, it's not just about the individual, it's not just about the community, the most fundamental reality that we're supposed to remember is that God is the Lord of life and that he, are, he is the one that's been faithful to us, caring for us, and that we, if we reflect on the past, we would be good to be reminded 
that we are God's people today. Our fundamental, most important foundational identity marker that we are the church and followers of Jesus Christ. What fundamentally identifies and sustains us is to remember God's faithfulness to us, his steadfastness, his love, his forgiveness, his presence in the midst of hardship. And if we take a moment, the booths remind us of all of that from God. Because maybe it's just part of human nature. When things are really good in life, we tend to forget God. And when things are really bad in life, we tend to curse God. But in reality, if we just remember what God has done in the past, we remember he's always good and wise and steadfast and forgiving and gracious. So the first thing the Feast of Tabernacles does for us is to remind us to be thankful for the past, especially in terms of what God has done for us. But secondly, it gives us a really strong encouragement to be a witness and to be into the world in the present, to be evangelistic, to be a light of the world. Read with me verse 16. It says, So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square of the water gate, and the square of the gate of Ephraim. Now you're thinking, well, why is that evangelism? Well, because in Nehemiah's time, merchants and traders established a permanent base in Jerusalem. And the Feast of Tabernacles would have been a surprise to them because they weren't Israelites, they weren't Jewish people, they came here because of economy and commerce and trade, They set up their places, and then one week out of the year, you see that in the center of the city, the Israelites are building these makeshift tents, and they live in them for a week. They're camping out for a week. And that's a subtle indicator that we're supposed to be a witness in the present. Well, why is that? Why is that an encouragement to be evangelistic in the present? Well, one thing you notice in verse 16 is this. Look at where the tents were built. It says there are at least in four areas of life on their roofs, in the courtyards, the house of God, and right there square by the water gate. What that tells us is this, that the booths were built in their family life, in their social life, their religious life, in their business and vocational work life. And that's telling us that the booth and the reminder of God's presence and our identity as people always takes shape evangelistically in the family life, in the courtyards, which is the social life, on the house of God, which is our religious life, between brothers and sisters in Christ, in the square by the water gate where all the economy and the trade took place, which is our business life. It means every area of your life, you're called to be a witness and to be a light because people should be looking at you on some level and be wondering, why are you a little bit different? I thought you were the same, but you're a little bit different because I think there's a tendency for some of us to say, okay, at church, this is going to be my religious life, and then you go into work, and you start operating by a different set of principles, saying the business world is cutthroat, and in order to succeed, i got to play by the worldly rules. That's completely unbiblical. You're always the same as a follower and disciple of Jesus, whether at home or at work or in the neighborhood. In every sphere of your life, there's a challenge here, according to verse 16, to be a witness to the goodness and the grace of Jesus Christ. Many of you have gone through our discipleship material here, written by an elder, Albert Shim, uh, who used to be an MTW missionary. And in, I think it was chapter 8 in one of the books, in discipleship, it talks about being a witness. And if you haven't gone through discipleship, I encourage you to do so. Talk to Pastor Min. He can get you plugged in. But if you haven't gone through discipleship or you have, this is a good reminder of what gospel witnessing looks like in a 21st century modern context. 
See, one of the things that you learn from discipleship in the material is this, that the pattern of evangelism that we embrace here at New Life, and I think the New Testament church does, is what's been called the oikos evangelism, you know, your life evangelism, your house evangelism. Oikos is a Greek term for household, similar to the tent or the booth. But it's so much more than just your household, than one nuclear family. Oikos evangelism represented the fundamental units of society that consisted of all those within one sphere of influence. Friends, neighbors, associates, coworkers, relatives. In fact, Thomas Wolfe has pointed out that the early church spread through oikos evangelism, evangelizing family members who saw the old sinner become the new saint, sharing with the neighbor who questioned how such a difference had come over his old friend in reaching the guys in the local trade union or the oikos that played tennis together in the workplace. And that's exactly what we see here in Nehemiah chapter 8, that every sphere of your life, your house life, your neighborhood life, your friend life, your work life, your social life, in some ways you're always called to represent Jesus and to be a witness. Because seeing people live in these homemade tents for an entire week they definitely would be asking, what are they doing and why are they doing this? And one of the questions that you got to ask yourself is to say, as you engage in the world, has anybody asked you? You know, on surface level, you look like everyone else, but when they get to know you, why do you do that? Because it's more explicit here in verse 15. It says there, celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, and right there in 15, proclaim it and publish it. That means you proclaim the gospel of Jesus and you publish it. You don't publish it through the newspaper or through your social media or through a vlog. It's basically saying, proclaim the goodness of Jesus and publish it on the paper of your own heart and life. And somebody at some point may be asking you, you seem a little bit different. A couple of, maybe a month ago, I was at the car dealership, at a Subaru car dealership. And I wasn't looking for a car, I was there with a a coworker, I guess you could call a friend at the Subaru car dealership and just talking to the, the dealer uh, over at the dealership and he was like, uh, what do you do for a living? It always happens at the dealership because they just want to know what your purchasing power and your income is. It's like, I'm a pastor. I'm a spiritual leader at a church in Fullerton. And then he took, he looked at me and he's like, you know, it's a young guy. You know, he, we go there, he sees our cars, you know, he's just looking at it and he's like, oh, you guys skateboard. We dress like normal people. What do you do for a living? I'm a pastor, I'm a spiritual leader, a life coach, I don't know how to say it. And he looks at me, he's like, you don't look like a pastor. You don't seem that spiritual, religious. And I don't know what you guys think of that or how you take that. Either it's an insult or it's a compliment. But he literally said that four times during that one visit at the dealership. And the guy that I was with was purchasing a car and every time I talked to the salesman, he was about 23 years old, lived in Chino Hills, I think. Like, you don't seem like a pastor. So I gave him my business card, my church card. And then while we were talking to the finance people, he looked up our website and he came back. He's like, you're a pastor. <laughs> you, you're real. That's a legit website. You have a suit on and a tie. At some point, friends, I guess the point is this. It doesn't mean that you have to be all weird <laughs> when you're engaging the world. Maybe if you want to be for the sake of Jesus, you could do it. You may actually look exactly the same. But at some point, as your coworkers or your neighbors dig in a little bit deeper, they got to say and think to themselves, you're a little bit different than me. Why do you give up your Sundays to go to church? That's the best day to relax before you begin the work week. 
Why do you actually always go to Bible study? Why do you seem to give your money away? Why are you so joyful when you face the deepest hardships in this life? Why are you so kind to the people? Why do you always help those who are in need and mercy? There has to be something different about you, according to what 1 Peter says, is that when they ask for a reason to believe, you better have an answer. But before you have the answer to tell people why you do the things that you do, you have to assume they're asking you, why do you do the things that you do? Through oikos evangelism. Daryl Guter explains rightly that oikos evangelism is the most challenging evangelism. It's not easy. It's because it demands an alignment, a congruence between your life and your message. He writes, you don't pass along a tract, you are the tract. In a very real way, your life is under the microscope. Your decisions, your priorities, your words, and your actions explain to those around you what it means to follow Jesus. And therein lies for them the evidence or faith so that they'll ask you, why do you do this? What do you believe? And then according to 1 Peter, you are to them the apologetic for Christianity, a changed life and a changing life right before them, that you give them a reason to ask, and then you'll have the answer in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then and only then can you, in oikos evangelism, proclaim and publish it with your very own life. And that's what we're called to do. That's what the booths remind them. People are asking them all the time, why are you living in tents? Well, I don't know. If you're an Israelite, what would you say? You imagine yourself, why are you living in tents? Well, because my ancestor Abraham, he was a father of our faith. Eventually, we led to a people who are under the captivity of the Egyptians, in you know, slavery, and there's injustice. We wanted to worship and be a faithful people to God. So my ancestors, generations ago, were led by this guy named Moses. And they led them through this wilderness wander for 40 years. And they all had to just eat the same meal, quail and manna, for 40 years. And they complained. But Moses was a faithful leader and hit this rock and living water came out. And that's how they lived. And they were reminded of God's faithfulness. Those are my ancestors. And the same God back then is with me here today. And I'm going to celebrate this by making a fake booth and tabernacle. I'm going to live in it for a week because that's the God who I love and loves me and I worship. Well, it costs evangelism. In our same way, that's what we do here today. You won't build a booth, but maybe it's going to church. Maybe it's sharing your faith. Maybe it's not being shady and duplicitous in your business practices because you want to have integrity before the eyes of God. Maybe you show that you don't want power and money in the same way that the world does. Maybe you're merciful and gracious to the people around you. Maybe for those of us in youth group or in elementary school, maybe you're nice and kind to the one student that no one else likes at school. The one student that always seems to get in trouble but never seems to have a friend. And maybe you're going to show your faith to that one student so that everyone else in the class says, why'd you be friends with him? You could tell that person because I want to build a booth. <laughs> in a tent, and go to church. Well, I think I belabored that point, so let's move on to our last point for today. The booth reminds us to be thankful for the past. It's an encouragement to be a witness in the present. And last but not least, it gives us an unrelenting hope for the future. That's what the booth reminds us, because it's temporary. You see, living in tents and tabernacles was a reminder that this world wasn't home. There's always a sense of impermanence where, according to this one scholar, McConville, it's a reminder to never trust in walls because everything around here is temporary. 
Like Abraham, they lived in tents, but they looked forward to a city that was permanent and eternal built by God. They longed for a better country, a heavenly one, a city God prepared for them in eternity. Well, he captured this among the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 14 to 16. It really captures the life of Abraham, the life of the Israelites, and even the New Testament church you and I hear today, that we're always a people along the way. Not a people who arrived, a people along the way. Let's read Hebrews 11, 14 to 16. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. In the same way, the tabernacle reminds us that we're always looking for an eternal, better country, the kingdom of God. We're called to look beyond this world, friends, to our permanent home in heaven. That ultimate safety and satisfaction comes in the future for what Jesus has promised us and has given to us as our reigning king. Our greatest challenge as a church is to show the world that our best life is yet to be and not our best life now. Paul Tripp, in talking about the future of hope and a wandering community, wrote in an article, and he says, really insightfully, our culture is really not a people who look to a better country or look to a better life of the world to come. Our culture today is really trying to live your best life now. You know, there's this, according to Tripp, he writes about this pack-it-all mentality that's captured our youth with the hashtag, you only live once. You know, perhaps you heard some variation of the statement, but you only live once, and if you do it right, once is all you need. And all these trendy phrases reveal that every generation shares one thing in common. We all suffer from eternity amnesia. And what he means is this. Eternity amnesia loads all our hopes and dreams into this present moment. Eternity amnesia makes present pleasures more magnetic and more seductive, and current difficulties more painful and disappointing. Those who suffer from eternity amnesia obsessively work to experience delight and anxiety to do everything we can to avoid discomfort. He's saying, if you think your best life is now and we live with all our energy to think that we finally arrived and this life is all we have, then we live as if we have eternity amnesia because we're always what Abraham and the Israelites and Hebrews 11 tells us, a people along the way longing for a better country. And Paul Tripp goes on, he says, whatever confessional theology says about eternity, many of us treat here and now, life today, as if all that there is is what we have today. And he says there's a big difference between people who have a destination mentality instead of a preparation mentality. A destination mentality means that we are people who arrived at our destination. Let's make the best of this world because it's the best life that we could ever have. Whereas the gospel of Jesus says that we need to live with a preparation mentality, that we're seeking a better country, a place that will give full satisfaction. And this whole life, as good as it is in this world, it's just to prepare us for a better country, a future home, a future place of prominence. All the things that you feel in your heart of dissatisfaction, of longing, of heartache can only be satisfied in the world that is yet to come in the kingdom of God, but we get a taste of it because Jesus came into this world and died on the cross. And when he died on the cross, he ushered in his reigning power it's not perfect yet. There's still a lot of suffering and injustice. But Jesus gives us a taste in his first coming. 
And then he's going to consummate that experience for us in the second coming as he ushers us in into that final better country that this world has no way of comparing in terms of his glory and his honor and his satisfaction. Let me end with this. A couple of things that this Feast of Tabernacles did was that they had a a lot of uh, ceremonies. I mean, it was a a once a year celebration. They had a couple of rituals. There's a water ritual and there's a festival of lights. It's wonderful because even today, there's a lot of festival of lights. You could think of Disney's movie, The Tangled, and you think of um, any kind of lights that they're showing even at Christmas. There's a festival of lights and there's a water ritual. Now, we're not going to go into depth in here, but it's something kind of interesting about what they did to celebrate as a people of God. The water ritual was basically collecting water on the first day of the tabernacle, of the Feast of Tabernacles, and they would use this water to really sustain them for the rest of the week. But the water had to be holy. It had to come from the pool of Siloam. It was a reminder that God will give them water to replenish them. It was a reminder that this water is what was used by Moses in the temple sacrifices to make everything clean. So the water gave them satisfaction. The water gave them sustenance. The water gave them a cleansing. So they did this water ceremony to remind them that real holy water comes from God and that cleanses them and satisfies their thirst. And the concept of living water is critical to understanding the significance of this ceremony. Living water had to come directly from God via the rain or other some natural resource like the pool of Siloam. It was used for all ordinances and rituals required in the water in the law of Moses. And then you fast forward. And then in John chapter 6, verse 8, you can even look at John 4. The background is sort of feast or tabernacles, but they stopped celebrating that in John chapter 6 through 8. And then Jesus finally waited until the great day of the feast, on which there is no water-pouring ceremony, and then he publicly declared that he was the source of the living water, that in the absence of the celebration involving the waters of Siloam, Jesus' words invited people to drink from himself in his death and resurrection, the true source of satisfaction, the true source of water, salvation, the true source of cleansing from their guilt and their sins. And Jesus, by referring to himself as a living water, proclaimed his divinity. He was the fountain of living waters. And only those who accepted Jesus as the one sent from God, just like the holy water, to save mankind, could be baptized and receive the cleansing necessary for them to enter into the kingdom of God. And then after the water ritual, they would have the festival of lights. It was the second great ceremony. Huge golden lampstands were set up in the temple compound, and each was lit at sundown. Now, I like to think that in sort of a metaphorical, a metaphorical way, an anecdotal way, that every time we light up the Christmas trees and light up the lights in front of our houses during Christmas season or have these little Christmas ornaments, we turn them on at night, it's sort of a festival of lights. I think it's not what they're talking about, but I'm stretching the context. But in the same ways, it could be reminded of the same point. One, one scholar says this is about the Festival of Lights. Four enormous golden candlesticks were set up on the court, 50 cubits high. They're ginormous, with four golden bowls placed upon them and four ladders resting each on each candlestick. The light emanating from the four candles is so bright that there is no courtyard in Jerusalem that was not lit up by the light of the light of the candlestick ceremony and the festival of lights. And because Jerusalem was upon a hill, the whole city was lit up 
through the light of the great lamps, and Jerusalem would literally shine out against the backdrop of a darkened night sky. And this light, according to the Jewish rabbi, was symbolic of God's Shekinah glory. And thou hast promised to return to Israel, the coming of the Messiah, a city on a hill. And that's why when you read again in John 6 through 8, what does Jesus say? I am the living water. John chapter 4. What does he say in John 8, 12? I am the light of the world. Because the light stand reflects that in the darkness of our hurt, the darkness of our depression, the darkness of our sin, the only healing, the only answer to all the brokenness and injustice that you and I experience can only be rectified and healed in the coming of the light of God, the light that illuminates and gives, gives clarity on the path the decisions we make on life, the light that would heal us, the light that would give you brilliance in the sense that finally we arrived. And then and only then when we see that the true light of the world is going to be Jesus Christ. And that's why he says, I'm the light of the world. I am the living water. That all the promises that Abraham and the Israelites and the wilderness wandering and the Israelites in Nehemiah chapter 8 and what we want here today as 21st century people, we want guilt to be done away with. We want actually a cleansing. We want a satisfaction to say that we belong here in this life and have a sense of value. And we want a sense of light to clear the path and decisions that we make and have a sense of brilliance to know that we finally arrived all that all these Israelites desired and prayed for and wanted for centuries, we have finally and climatically fully given to us in Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world and the living water for the broken, desperate souls of sinners like you and me. And all that water and light ceremonies taught them and promises them now are available to us and given to us in Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. Jesus Christ is the living water. Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Jesus Christ, the one who tabernacled among us, according to John chapter 1. And then and only then will we realize that we have an unrelenting hope for the future because Jesus Christ came once and he promised that he's going to come back a second time and make all this happen in perfect harmony and consummation. Friends, let's bow our heads and turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the grace that we received in your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to focus our heart and life upon Christ, who is the light of the world, and upon him who is the bread of life and the one who is living water for us. We thank you and pray that you would be with us. Uh, give more of your grace to us so that we could be changed and transformed to the image of Jesus. We ask all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, New Life, 